This is dangerous. Serving God's dangerous. Because there's a way to do it that would contradict the incarnation. The Son of Man did not come to be served. And there's a way that would contradict the deity of God. God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. So you have two massive warnings in the Bible. They're not the only ones. That warn you not to serve God in a way that would dishonor God. So, what is that? How do you do that? What's the wrong way and what's the right way? I wrote a book called uh, Living by Faith in Future Grace. And that book is my attempt to answer that question. What does life look like when you're not serving God, but letting God serve you? Trusting God to serve you every moment of the day. What does life look like when you are the beneficiary every moment of your life and God is the benefactor every moment of your life and He is therefore getting the glory and you're getting the help every moment of your life. What does life look like when you conceive of that way? Now, I have a big concern about this because all over the world and the American church, it seems to me, we have done a massive and a blasphemous role reversal with God on this issue of service. And we have constructed a theology. It's not usually articulated in any kind of heretical way. It's just kind of informal theology. It comes out in hymns sometimes, comes out in our little talks and the way we conceive and the way our minds work, that God has done a lot of things for us. God has done a lot of good things for us. And now... The way to respond to that is to do a lot of good things for him. And as it were, to pay him back. So the Christian life becomes an amortization schedule. He's loaned you a lot, given you a lot. Now it's going to take you an eternity, but get on schedule and pay your monthly payment. And you'll never get it paid off, but you should. Try. The, the, the thought of, of this tit for tat, God does for you, you do for Him. God does for you, you do for Him. Gave, He gave His life for me. What have I given for Him? We sing it. Now, there's some problems with this. I call it the debtor's ethic, the debtor's ethic. And it's very dangerous. And I'll give you three reasons why it shouldn't be pursued. Uh, here's another name for it for those of you who are maybe over 50. The Tonto Ethic. Raise your hand if you ever heard of Tonto. Right. Lone Ranger and Tonto. I owe silver away. Silver bullet. I should ask for hands if you've never heard of them, but well, I, I I watched it. I watched it every Saturday, and uh, there was one show 
where it explained the relationship between Tonto and the Lone Ranger. So those of you who don't know, you young folks, um, there was the Lone Ranger, and he rode his white horse, had a silver bullet, wore a mask, and, and he had this Indian friend named Tonto, and he was always at his side, and the poor Lone Ranger would get himself into scrapes over and over again, and Tonto would get him out of the scrapes. And that was pretty much the gist every week in this cowboy show. Um, now, the way Tonto got himself into this relationship was this. It's a cultural thing. It's an Indian cultural thing. There was one program that showed it, that um, when he was a little boy, uh, the Lone Ranger, before he had become the Lone Ranger, rescued Tonto from some deadly circumstance. I don't remember the details. But he rescued the little Indian boy, saved his life. In that culture, if somebody saves your life, you devote the rest of your life to saving their life. And so he, he lived for the Lone Ranger. He served the Lone Ranger. Served him. So, if you conceive of service that way, you will continually dishonor God. Poor God, in a scrape, got to get him out of his scrape. I'll help him out over and over again. He got me out of my scrape, I'll get him out of his scrape. I'll be there when he needs me. I'll go to the place where he can't get anybody else to go, and, and I'll help him. So it, it, another name for this debtor's ethic is the Tonto ethic. Now, what's wrong with this? Number one, it's impossible. In this sense, when God gives grace to his people to save them, fill them, and strengthen them, he doesn't stop say, okay, now I gave you, I gave you a 10 gallons of grace to run your car on yesterday's gas. He doesn't do it like that. Rather, grace is not just a past thing, it's a future thing, and you can't run your car on gratitude for yesterday's grace. There's a whole theology built on the gratitude ethic. That's another name for it. I, I abandoned that name because I got scolded so often by dumping on gratitude, which is a glorious and beautiful biblical thing that I decided to quit. But I'll dump on it here a little bit. Gratitude is not a good motive for human obedience. Now, this should shock you because most theologians say it's the only motive. I could name some very famous theologians that you all admire. I just read one the other day who said this sentence. I think I can almost quote it verbatim because it disappointed me so much. Uh, he said, therefore, the only Motive for Christian service or Christian obedience is the heart of gratitude, not the hope of gain. I think that's dead wrong. I've written everything I've written to prove that sentence wrong. Now, the heart of gratitude is essential to be a Christian. You can't be a Christian without a heart of gratitude. 
you're not grateful to God to all, for all He's done for you, you, you will not be a Christian. But, if you try to turn gratitude into performance or into labor or into service for tomorrow, gratitude for something you did yesterday into work that you do for Him tomorrow or this afternoon, you will not obey Him. You will serve Him in a way that shows that He is in need of you. Because what... Here's the text. I'll give you two couple of texts on where I'm getting this. The first one is... 1 Corinthians 15.10 By the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. But I worked harder than any of them. Nevertheless, it was not I, but grace which is with me. The reason I said the debtor's ethic is impossible is this. Alright? So God gives me grace today or 2,000 years ago, and now I have a day in front of me to live. I want to live it to His honor and to His glory and to show Him to be magnificent, not me. So I conceive in my head, alright, He's done good things for me. I will now do what He told me to do in order to show that He's done good things for me, and I will then will to put a foot in front of another or lift a hand or write a letter or say a word or something. Now, what's going on at that moment? According to 1 Corinthians 15.10, what's going on at that moment is grace upon grace is coming down to enable me to do those things. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace to me was not in vain, but I worked harder than any of them. Nevertheless, it was not I, but grace working. So I'm not paying any debt back. I'm going deeper into debt every step I take. Every step I take, I take in you. Anybody heard that song? Only kids have heard that song. Um... Every deed you do done by faith in grace puts you further in debt. It is impossible to get out of debt to God, nor should you ever try. Because the giver gets the glory. If you put yourself in the position of a repayer, you're going to get some of the glory. If you put yourself in the position of the constant receiver of grace every moment of your life so that every word you say, every gesture you make, every step you take is a grace gift from God, He gets the glory, you get the help, and you go deeper and deeper and deeper into the glorious experience of utter debt. So, number one problem is the debtor's ethic is impossible. What do we have that we did not receive? And if we received it, why should we boast as though it were not a gift? 1 Corinthians 4, 7. Second reason. 
it, uh, if it were possible, would nullify grace and turn it into a business transaction. If you could somehow, which you can't because of the sovereignty of grace, if you could begin to perform for God an obedience and a service that would somehow render back to Him what He has given you, then grace would not be grace, it would be a trade. It would be business transaction. That's not grace. No businessman calls a, a good transaction grace. It's not grace. It says that real plainly in Romans 4.4. To him who works, his wage is not reckoned according to grace, it is reckoned according to debt. Every businessman knows that. That's not evil. It's just evil when you do it with God. Among humans, we've got to function that way. I give you a good air conditioner, you pay me whatever hundreds of dollars, and that's fair, that's just. Don't ever deal with God that way. Don't ever deal with God that way. God gives to all men everything, life and breath and everything. You are totally debtor. You can never negotiate. You can never barter, never trade, never sell. All that whole mentality of the debtor's ethic has got to go from our minds and from our hearts. So the second reason is, if it were possible to live the debtor's ethic, it would not be grace anymore. It would be debt. Business transaction. The third reason we shouldn't pursue the debtor's ethic is because it minimizes the importance of future grace. That's why I called the book Future Grace. I think we have in our minds grace is something that happened at Calvary. Grace is something that happened in the resurrection. Uh, and that's true, gloriously true. And had it not happened there, it couldn't happen anywhere else. Because at the cross, all other grace was purchased for us. And if I have any grace sustaining me this afternoon, it was purchased by the death of Jesus for me. I don't deserve it, and I don't do anything to earn it. It was bought for me back there. I have one choice. I can rest in it, or I can offend the grace of God by trying to earn it. And so, I want to stress there is such a thing as future grace. Now, I quoted 1 Corinthians 15.10 a minute ago. Let me add to that 2 Corinthians 9.8. It goes like this. God is able to make all grace abound toward you. Now, we're talking future. Alright? So, here you are facing October 23rd. Some of you got lots of work to do today. And you're probably sitting there thinking that you should be there working on it already. Um, lots of work to do today. Now, how do you approach a day like that? This text says, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that you may have all sufficiency in all things and provide in abundance for every good work. God, let's collapse that down, God is able to make all grace abound to you for every good work. 
You got any good work in front of you today? Yes, you do. A whole day full of good work. So how are you going to do it? You're going to do it with your sheer willpower in order to show God how thankful you are to Him for yesterday's help? No. You're going to do it in reliance on the promise of 2 Corinthians 9 8, help. God is able to make October 23rd grace abound to you today. A grace for 8 o'clock, a grace for 9 o'clock, a grace for 10 o'clock, 11, 12, 1, 2, 3, 4. God will make a grace there for the very good deed He expects from you and nothing else. You will never find yourself today or any day facing a challenge for which there is no grace to perform it. Ever. There will always be the grace that you need to do what He asked you to do. That's living by faith in future grace. And it's the opposite of the debtor's ethic, which looks to past grace and then tries to somehow live in the strength of past grace and turn it by the crank wheel of gratitude into today's work. I don't think gratitude was ever meant to function that way. I think the voice of gratitude whispering in our ears says something like this. It says, do you realize how much God has done for you? What a great God you have. Be filled with gratitude. Be overflowing with gratitude. And then gratitude whispers to faith. Now faith, brother faith, sister faith, my job is done. But let me tell you something, faith. As you go to work today, remember yesterday, and remember the cross. Because my job is not today. My job is yesterday. Gratitude orients on what we've experienced and what we've tasted. Faith orients on the future grace that is coming. Will you believe it? Will you trust Him for it? Will you hang on it? Will you base your life on it? Faith takes promises about today's grace that are promised an hour from now or some doctor's appointment you've got and they wonder what that lump is here. Grace is all about that doctor's appointment. And faith is all about that doctor's appointment. Gratitude is simply a little minister to the faith that says, you can count on it. Go ahead, faith. Go ahead, faith. Bank on it. Because he's done it so often in the past and you're so full of thankfulness for that. Now, faith rests on the promise. Rest on the promise. I think the way God gets glory in our service is that we make Him the benefactor continually and ourselves the beneficiary. And living by faith in future grace is the way to do it. So, let me relate this to prayer for just a moment because... It was said earlier, wisely, that in missions where we face so many challenges and we need grace every moment of every day, that we need to learn to pray. 
And prayer is all about asking for this grace and relying upon this grace for the future. And prayer and this grace glorify God more than anything else glorifies God. So, take two texts on prayer. Or maybe three. Let's take Psalm 50. Picture this. This is called in Spurgeon's sermon... um, Robinson Crusoe's text. Because in the novel, Robinson Crusoe, uh, this is the verse that he used when he got into difficulty. The verse says, Psalm 50, 15, Call on me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you will glorify me. Now that puts in the form of a prayer everything I have said up till right now in this talk. Today is a day of trouble. If you didn't know that, you're not awake. The devil is alive and well. Remaining corruption in your own life is functioning. Relationships are going to be difficult today. And before you're done, you will have trouble. Sufficient unto the day is the trouble thereof. And it's always there in its measure. So today is a day of trouble. So how do you begin a day of trouble? You begin it with Psalm 50:15. Call on me in the day of trouble. And I will, will, will. Not yesterday. We're talking tomorrow or five minutes from now or five hours from now. I will deliver, rescue, help. You, and at that moment, what will you do? Tell me what the text says. I will glorify you. You, that is, I'm human, will glorify you, Father. So how does God get glory? Answer, by prayer of helpless people asking for deliverance or power or grace so that God is the giver and we are the getter. I am on a crusade to help people stop giving to God and start receiving from God. Let God be your servant. Because the, the one who serves gets the glory. The giver gets the glory. You call on me in the day of trouble. I will work for you, and you then will glorify me. See that rhythm? This issue is really, really big. Two other texts on prayer. John 16, 24. Hitherto you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. The design of prayer is the joy of the prayer. The design of prayer is for your joy. Hitherto, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. Prayer is designed to make your joy full. Chapter 14, verse 13, however. Same book. John 14, 13. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it 
that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So what is prayer about anyway? Which is it? Come on. Which is it? Is it for my joy or His glory? What's the answer? Yes. Oh, good. Good. A plus. Yes. A plus. You cannot distinguish those two. You dare not. My whole program, my whole theology, my whole life falls under one big rubric, which I got out of those two texts and a few others, like hundreds. God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in Him. And the person who tries to stop pursuing satisfaction in God will dishonor Him big time. Because the text says, pray that your joy may be full. Pray and the Father will be glorified. You can choose between those two. When you look to God for help and to meet your needs and to give you strength and to give you grace, you're saying, I'm nothing, you're everything, I'm hungry, you're food, I'm thirsty, you're water, I'm bankrupt, you're money. And who gets the glory in a moment like that? God. That's all prayer is. Prayer is the, the lowering and the emptying of a human soul because we don't have any resources anymore. And we turn to God and say, give, give, give. And we don't mean stuff. We mean God. Give me yourself. Give me your fellowship. Give me your joy. Who needs stuff? Well, just enough stuff to do every good deed. We do need stuff. If, if the will of God is that we use stuff to do the good deed, you might need a car to get somewhere. You might need a computer to do something. You might need an airplane to go someplace. You might need some stuff. And of course, He created the world, and so we do need some stuff. And some of you uh, make your living manufacturing that stuff. And if you conceive of it that way, you can turn it all into worship. Um, let's, ha let's stay for a minute with this issue of God serving us. I know that can sound very offensive and belittling but because of our whole mindset and because of there are some images of service that would be belittling. But hear me what I'm saying. That God wills to become our servant in Jesus Christ. I did not come to be served, but to serve, Jesus says. He's not inglorious when he says that. That's not an ugly thing. That's not a mean thing. I did not come to be served, but to serve. Jesus wants to be your servant. <clears throat> missionaries. Remember John Patton, the missionaries in the Hebrides? John Patton lived on two promises. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. First, go therefore and make disciples. I will never, lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. I have all authority and I'll be with you forever. Go. Those are the pillars. I drew it wrong. I should have drawn this part here and those two here holding up. Go. So go make disciples because of these two massive commitments to be your servant. I have all authority 
among all the nations, in heaven and on he- in heaven, on earth, in hell, and I will be with you, working for you forever. Take a few texts on God's work for us. I love to collect texts on this. I live on this. I get up in the morning, and <clears throat> when I don't have any voice, <clears throat> I say, okay, Lord, uh, you want the good deed to be done of this talk? If that's part of your plan for the day, give the grace. Give the grace. If you don't, it's all right. It's your business. But I'm, I'm, I'm available. And uh, if you want to do this, then just give the grace that he continually, so far, has been giving the grace. Now, here's some texts that, that put God in that role of the servant. Uh, first, Second Chronicles 16.9. When I'm talking to youth, I love this one. Youth, eat this up, I'll tell you. You can turn this into youth ministry really powerful. The eyes of the Lord roam to and fro, to and fro throughout the whole earth, seeking to show himself powerful on behalf of those whose heart is whole toward him. Now what is that? The eyes of the Lord rove through Park City, rove through Dallas, looking for something. Does it say looking for help? Put in a little parenthesis here. I jog. Thank you, brother. Thanks for being sensitive. Um, I jog at home down Franklin Avenue, across Cedar, up onto Washington, back down 11th, my big... A little loop, little loop, two and a half miles or so. And over here on, uh, it's at the juncture of Franklin and Cedar, there's a machinist company, and there's a permanent help wanted sign on the wall. It's, it's been there for years. And it just hangs up there. And some days, they hang with string a big red no in front of it. No help one. And every time I jog by that the no is up there, I say, yes, that's the gospel. <laughs> God has hanging out of heaven no help one. Help available. Help available. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth seeking to show Himself mighty on behalf of those who will, like little children, look to Him and pray and trust Him. Faith in grace for that day. So for the youth, you talk about the shoulders and the size of the shoulders and you say, God's got really broad shoulders. And the only way he can magnify the breadth of his shoulders and the strength of his back is if you will load stuff on there. So that the Bible commands you, roll your burden onto the Lord, Psalm 55, 22. Cast your anxieties onto him because he cares for you. God is in the business of trucking loads of anxiety through the world. And your business is to load it off yourself onto Him so that you get the help. He gets the glory of carrying that massive love. George Mueller said, 
when he was asked one afternoon, I mentioned this, I think over at Dallas, or I mentioned it somewhere recently, that he was, uh, he was calm and collected in the burden of the orphanage and the burden of his pastorate and the burden of the mission and the burden of everything. And somebody said, how in the world in your busy life with so many responsibilities do you maintain the kind of equilibrium and poise and peace and uh, other person orientation? And he said, I rolled 60 things onto God this morning. I looked at those broad shoulders standing beside me and saying, Okay, George, you're going to live this day to try to pay me back by doing hard things for me? Or are you going to let me work for you? I'll go before you and I'll work for you. I'll clear the way. I'll position things. I'll, I'll make things work today. Or I'll work in and through things that break today for your holiness. You're going to let me work or are you going to work? And he just takes one burden. They need milk. They need food. There's relationship problems with the kids. They just, just one after the other. So how do you pray in the morning? Or did you pray this morning? I get up in the morning and you know what's on my mind first? John Piper's evil. That's my first little dot that I pray for. God, come. God, help me. God, cleanse me. God, humble me. God, restore my faith and give me joy and satisfy me in the morning with your steadfast love. And then I move out of this concentric circle and I pray, Oh, God, touch Noel and sustain her and care for her and love her and keep her close to you. That's my wife. And then, God, please take Karsten and Shelly and Millie and their new baby in her tummy. That's my oldest son. And touch Benjamin and Moody and touch Abraham who's not walking with you and get him today, Lord Jesus. And then please take my 17-year-old Barnabas and make him mighty in the Word and mighty in the Spirit. And then take my five-year-old Talitha, Lord, and awaken her to spiritual things and bring her to yourself, O oh God. And then I move out to my elders and I pray for them all by name and my staff. And then I pray for all the support staff by name every morning. And then I move out if I have time to the bigger church. And then I move out to the church in America and then the nations. And, and I just, my heart just moves out in concentric circles to say, God, I can't do anything for you. You've got to manage my family. You've got to manage my staff. You've got to manage the church. You've got to manage the nation. You've got to manage the mission. And you roll one burden after the other so that when you get up off your knees, you're not, you're not crushed anymore. You've got a servant. Now, if you, think, if you think I'm risking too much with this issue of making God a servant, did you know that in Luke 12, there's a picture of the second coming? And the picture of the second coming, I can't remember exactly which verses it is. I think it's 12, 12 or something like that. Or maybe it's at the end, 12, 30, 30 something. And the picture of the second coming is when he comes, it says, he will make you sit at table and he will bind himself with the towel and he will serve you. Now, I know that happened on Monday, Thursday when he washed the disciples' feet and said, as I am doing to you, do so to each other. I expect that imagery while he's incarnate 
and on his way to death, I don't expect that at the second coming. I expect lightning and thunder and a white horse and a sword coming out of his mouth and a trumpet blast and the voice of command and the archangel and the gathering from the elect and the throne and the bowing down. That's my image of the second coming. And that's right. But it's not the whole picture because he will never, ever, ever give up the right to be the benefactor, the servant. He will always be the one who works for us. And we will always be the needy, the welfare case, forever and ever and ever. So he adds to that glorious picture of triumphant king, the servant who will come and serve us forever and ever. He will always be our servant. One of the great texts that we love at Bethlehem, many people bear witness to me over the years that this text has served them well, is so crucial for missions because it says, what eye has ever seen a God like you? What ear has perceived a God like you who works for those who wait for Him? Now, the first part of that verse, no eye has seen a God like you, means Allah is not like this. The Hindu gods are not like this. The Jewish non-Christian distortion of the God of the Old Testament is not like this. There is one God like this, the God and Father manifest in our Lord Jesus Christ works for those who wait for Him. All other gods say, get to work for me. All other gods say, get to work for me. Our God says, Humble yourself. Realize you're a crippled, paralyzed, no good, can't do anything. Would you trust me to work for you? Would you let me work in you and through you? That's what Isaiah 64 has done for hundreds of people in our church. God works for those who wait for Him. Isaiah 46 1 to 4 talk about God being different from Baal, the God of the Babylonians, and Nebo, because they are carried on carts. But then it says, They are carried, but I am God, and from your youth I have carried you. I will carry you to old age, even to gray hairs, I will bear you. So, all you gray hairs, that's a precious promise. Even to your old age, I will carry you. I will carry and I will save, says the Lord. Well, we have to close. Let me see what I should use to close here. Two texts and we'll be done. Um, Matthew 6.34 says, Do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. What does that mean? I think it means in the sovereign providence of God, every day is apportioned its proper amount of pain. 
You may not know down here in the south the old Swedish hymn. Um, I think I write it down here. Maybe I know it by heart. Uh, day by day, and with each passing moment, strength I find to meet my trials here. Trusting in my Father's wise bestowment, I've no cause for worry or for fear. He whose heart is kind beyond all measure gives unto each day what he deems best. Lovingly, it's part of pain and pleasure, mingling toil with peace and rest. He whose heart is kind beyond all measure gives unto each day what he deems best. Lovingly, it's part of pain. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Now, align with that text, Matthew 6, 34, Lamentations 3, 22-23. You ought to understand that Lamentations is the most horrible book in the Bible because it was written after the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction was so horrid, women were boiling and eating their children. This is not funny. This is not light. God judged Jerusalem. God brought Babylon against Jerusalem. And in the middle of that most horrid of all descriptions of judgment, you get chapter 3. Great is thy faithfulness. You get the hymn from there. And there it says, His mercies are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Now correlate, His mercies are new every morning with sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Alright? Today, you're going to leave here in two minutes. And you will enter a day with pain appointed by God's sovereign kindness. But he has also appointed mercy for this day. Not yesterday and not tomorrow. This day has its pain. This day has its mercies. Don't try to solve tomorrow's pain. You got cancer. The doctor says you got five years. Don't live don't try to have enough grace today to handle the struggle in a year from now. That grace will be there, I promise you, on the authority of Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. That grace will be there. A dying grace will be there. But that grace is not for today. Today's grace is for today's pain. And there's enough. It is super abundant. And so I just leave you with this. Don't try to pay God back. Don't try to work for God who is not served by human hands. Let 1 Peter 4.11 be your watchword over this church and over your life. Let him who serves, 1 Peter 4.11, let him who serves, serve in the strength that God supplies so that 
in everything, God may get the glory through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the dominion forever and ever. The giver gets the glory. Therefore, do not give to God, get from God by prayer, moment by moment, all day today and for the rest of your life, and you will rejoice and He will get the glory and people around you will watch a kind of lifestyle of radical, sacrificial love that will make them ask, where's this come from? Father, I pray now that you would take these brothers and sisters and fan them all over the city, filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with faith in future grace, grace for five minutes from now, an hour from now, five hours, five years, five hundred years from now, plenty of grace by which they may do every good work that is appointed for them, not by working for you, but by trusting you to work for them. And so release them into love, release them into other-orientedness, not self-orientedness, free them for love, free them for mission, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.